You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. From the ever-expanding Christian humanist empire, this is Before They Were Live, an ongoing conversation about the Walt Disney Animation Studios canon in sequential order, coming to you transcontinentally from opposite sides of the Northern Hemisphere. I'm Joshua Altmanshofer, a longtime listener of the network, first-time caster, as it were, and joining me is a man who needs no introduction. Some have called him the godfather of Christian podcasting, Dr. Michael Farmer. I'm and not, we welcome all those. I'm What's not sure that? anyone's ever... Uh, legitimately called me the godfather of Christian podcasting. <laughs> oh, sure they have. Sure they have. Anyway. I like to imagine that there's like six or seven families and we're all in some sort of war. It's us versus uh, uh, homebrewed Christianity and Christ the Center and the other kind of long runners. Oh, sure. Yeah. And we welcome all comers. But anyway, we are... Uh... Thank you for joining us, friends, and uh, we welcome all those who would join us as we dig some gems uh, out of these movies. And any inopportune sneezers or kettle sleepers, even singers into wells, uh, we let <laughs> we welcome you to join us as we uh, as we go on this journey. And who among us hasn't sung into a well from time to time? Well, you know, if it echoes, then that means your wish will come true. We should probably Which is nice. uh, we should we should probably describe the premise of the show. We shot we probably should. Do you want to take a swing at that? Or? Yeah, so uh, this was all Josh's idea. He uh he posted on Twitter that he was looking for someone to do this with and uh since I'm not on enough podcasts, I said, let's do it. But uh, the idea is we're going to watch through all of the Disney animated canon and do an episode about each one of them and kind of talk off the cuff without a whole lot of preparation about uh, what, what sorts of things are going on in and uh, throughout these movies. Did we decide if we were going to do the uh, Pixar movies too, Josh? Uh, we didn't talk about it. I was thinking, this is uh, as we just introduced the show here, I was thinking uh, our plan is to do about one of these a month, and there are currently 56 in the canon. So that gets us through about five years of shows. And then uh, we have one show um, a year for the rest of our lives, basically. Uh, <laughs> if we want to, and maybe beyond, maybe for all eternity, maybe uh, this show, just as just as Walt Disney himself, his creations outlived him, and they're still making the films. Maybe uh, after we pass on, someone will take up the mantle and continue podcasting. In, I, I like the idea that eternity. I would die and that you would continue to do the show, talking to a me that nobody else can hear. Oh, that's right. Well, perhaps, yeah. From from beyond the grave, you could uh, still listen in and still. It could be very interesting, or very, very not interesting. Well, we don't have to make a decision on Pixar for several years, as you said. So. <laughs> that's right. We're a long way because we're going sequentially, so we're still. When when did uh, we're starting with Snow White, the first of the of the canon, 
When when did that come out, Michael? Uh, it premiered in December 1937, but I don't think it got wide release until 1938. Yeah. It's so interesting. We think about movies um, being always the same as far as releases and things like that, but it was really quite different. Uh, like the way the way things rolled out or the or where things where you could see them and even you know this was even still a thing i think when we were kids maybe it even still is a thing where they would re-release uh like movies like snow white where it's like snow white was released several different times over the years because there's no other way to watch it right yeah i want to say disney right? re-released their movies every seven years because I, I distinctly remember seeing Bambi in a theater, and I was certainly not alive in 1944 whenever Bambi came out. So. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think they yeah. had a schedule. I think they released them, re-released them every seven years, and then you know home video yeah. just crushed that. But they tried to do it. Do you, do you remember when th- this is? I'm sure we're going to make frequent reference to the unethical business practices of Disney. And I'm not sure this is unethical, but uh, do, do you remember when they had the Disney vault? So they would they would release something on VHS or DVD, and they'd say, mm-hmm. it's only going to be available for six months and then back into the vault forever. So if you don't, yeah. if you, if you don't buy this $45 seven-disc version of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, you're never going to have another chance to see the movie until, you know, three years from now when we release an eight-disc version. Yeah, I I I think Michael that the uh, it's this is still a practice. They're, the Disney Vault practice is still like if you search the iTunes Store, there's certain movies that you cannot get because uh, we tried to watch the other uh, maybe a month ago. We were looking for Peter Pan, and Peter Pan is not currently available. Oh, what nonsense! Legally, you can certainly um, you can certainly buy them on uh, you, you can certainly buy them on like Amazon Marketplace. Oh sure, so, yeah. So the power of the vault is limited, but I guess it does still exist. Yeah. So <laughs> the other thing, the other thing I'm not sure people our age know about movies is in I think Jaws was the second movie to do this. I can't remember what the first one was. Um, but Jaws is the first big movie to do this, to release all over the country at the same time. What you'd have instead is road shows. So it would open, um, you still get a little bit of this in that smaller movies will open in Los Angeles and New York and then slowly open to the rest of the theaters. But, I mean, if you had gone to see um, 2001 A Space Odyssey, which I, I'm thinking of because it's in a John Updike novel, they, they see it months after it would have released. And, and there's, that's, not a, that's not a mistake on Updike's fault. It's just that movies didn't open everywhere at the same time. They slowly made their way across the country. So, so actually, uh, the 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 practice of um, the practice of opening nationwide happens uh, about halfway through the film industry, uh, from our perspective, forty years, uh, forty years ago. Right, which is really amazing to think about. Just the way that the way that technology has changed things. I mean, so so much of that is is just what can be produced, right? Like it, it's the the limited supply of film reels or whatever, you know, that... I, I didn't think about that, but that's probably, that's probably true. Yeah. I think a lot of it is just comes down to economics. So now it's all digital. That's right. So, which is remarkable. So 
getting into so our our premise, which was where we started with that, and this is this is something I, I hope will happen actually often in the show is that we just take these rabbit trails where they lead us because uh, I I find I want I want the show to be a conversation and a conversation not only between the two of us but also uh, with the audience. And so if you are listening to this and uh, you have a favorite um, memory or a uh, something that you want to bring to bring to our attention about any of the Disney movies, feel free to uh, reach out to us and uh, we'll include it or at least take a look at it. And um, the, the, I think the goal of all of this is just to bring um, just to bring more enjoyment to, to watching this, to watch it, to watch these movies uh, collectively rather than just as an individual or whatever. So uh, how can people reach out to us, Josh? Oh, we, well, we have an email address, which is before they were live at gmail.com. And uh, you can also find us through the Christian Humanist website, which is the ChristianHumanist.org. Just ChristianHumanist.org. Oh, I'm sorry. Years it's ago, when we registered the email and yeah. the website, we made the terrible mistake of having a V in the email address and no V in the website address. Okay, so, <laughs> so no, no V in the email. You know, I actually, I, I struggle with that almost every time I go to the website. But yeah, it is, um, it's I, just I, ChristianHumanist.org. I, I yeah, ChristianHumanist.org. And you should go check it out right now if you are interested in this sort of communal enjoying of uh, different types of. Um, entertainment and media right now uh, there's they're doing a, a read through of infinite jest by david foster wallace over there on the website which i'm so I'm thankful they didn't ask me on. to join them in the read through of infinite jest i'm so happy <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're, not, you're not doing it huh no 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 that book is I, I i have read i've read a number of thousand page books and i think i'm done with them i i uh I, I, you know the brothers karamazov is really wonderful but uh, the mm-hmm. other thousand-page books I've read did not reward me, so I'm not yeah. sure I'm going to do Infinite Jest. Well, also unlikely to be made into a Disney animated feature. That is true. That is true. Actually, do we should we should talk about our our title before they were live, because it seems that Disney these days, besides their besides their ethical, unethical practices of locking things away in a vault, um, they also are deciding to remake all of their intellectual property into live action movies. Have you seen any of the live action remakes? I, I have avoided them. Uh, I have mostly avoided them. I was actually um, desperate on a, uh, on one of our trans <laughs> transcontinental flights uh, over here and watched the jungle book, um, which doesn't, I, if I watch a movie on a plane, I don't really count it as having seen it because it's, um, watching a watching a movie on an airplane is not really the ideal conditions for watching a movie, but or especially like a big budget. I don't know if you'd call them action movies. They're they're kind of fantasy action movies, I guess. Right. Having never seen one. Yeah, actually, afterwards, I, I I read a little bit about it because it was it wasn't bad. I'm I'm not sure the I'm not sure that it needed updating. But I guess that's something that perhaps we'll talk about as we as we talk about these movies, some of the, some of the things, you know, what, what was, um, normal or good in, in the years that they were made versus now. Uh, but anyway, I'm not, I'm not sure that the jungle book really needed an update. 
Uh, but there were some interesting things in it and some things that they pulled uh, a little closer to um, – what's his name? Uh, Kipling, mm-hmm. the original author. Um, but yeah, so uh, – yeah, but anyway, reading reading up on it, it was talking about how this was really one you needed to see in 3D in the theaters because the effects were so amazing and it was so beautiful. And I was like, well, I did I did the worst possible viewing of this <laughs> that I, I could have. You made it and hand out 3D glasses on your plane? <laughs> <laughs> no, and those those screens. I don't know if any. I don't know if you've watched them, anything on ever watched something on an airplane, but they're so low res. Let's just those those live action remakes feel a little bit to me like another terrible Disney practice, which is the uh, the cartoon sequels and prequels. Yes, which uh, actually, I, I I completely agree with you that this is a terrible practice. But looking on the Disney canon uh, webpage on Wikipedia just to see uh, what you know, just the order of the films and how many there are and stuff. They're, they're coming out with within the canon sequels now for like the next three movies on the slate are all are all sequels. I'm disgusted by it. It's Fro- Frozen. I know it has a sequel. What are, what are the other ones? Uh, Wreck-It Ralph also has a sequel coming. And then well, I just looked at it earlier, but I've forgotten now. To say nothing of Pixar. I mean, Pixar seems to put out nothing but sequels now. Yeah, which is too bad. I really, although in fairness to Pixar, I love Toy Story three. Like I, I just think yeah, it's, it's, wonderful, it's, it's one of their movie finest about films. The death of God. <laughs> <laughs> See, now we got to do Pixar so that I can justify. <laughs> yeah, that that's going to be a long, uh, a long foreshadow there. Yeah, if we don't, yeah. If we so, don't talk so about tune that. Tune in when I'm fifty seven to hear me talk about. <laughs> We talk about the death of God in Toy Story three. Um, did you know there was supposed to be uh, there was supposed to be a computer computer animated prequel to Snow White a few years ago, in I which did not know that. in which we would see the Wicked Queen kill Snow White's father, and also we would learn that the reason Dopey doesn't talk is that he saw his mother die in front of him. Wow. And John, like John a... Lasseter, who had just taken over, just taken over uh, animation at Disney, uh, said no way and spared us all the Snow White prequel with Dopey watching his mother die. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. As if the original weren't dark enough. Wow. That's all. I, I, I have no words for that. Except for thank, thank God for John Lasseter. Thank you, God. Well, do you have any opening opening thoughts or opening statements on the on the movie itself? Um, I, I, this is one I didn't watch when I was a kid. I, I think I saw it. I, I decided I, I don't know 15 years ago that I would get all the uh, the features on DVD, and I, the, the the first place I saw it was there. I think I don't have any particular memories of of watching it as a kid, and and I'm I'm very interested as to what I would have thought of it as a kid because it's it's different than than the later movies in a lot of ways. It's 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 much slower. It's much quieter, and I think it's much scarier than anything um, post Sleeping Beauty. I mean, th- there's some really scary. You you watched it with your children. Were they were they afraid of the the Wicked Witch? Oh yeah, for sure. Well, not until she became the hag or 
whatever, the peddler woman, uh, is when they became afraid of her. Well, but, she addresses the camera, right? I mean, she looks right at you and tells you, Ugh. Yeah, and actually, yeah, she, she does. And even on the way to, even on the way to, Snow to the to the dwarves' uh, cottage to go uh, try and kill Snow White. She is she's talking to herself at that point. It's like she's completely she's completely lost it by that point. I mean, earlier in the movie, the way that she's talking directly to the camera, you're kind of you as the viewer are kind of in the position of either the mirror or the raven. Uh, so she's addressing the camera, but she's also addressing the character in the in the film itself. But but later. She's just she's completely off the rails. Yeah, yeah and and, the, and she wants to not kill Snow White, uh, but have her buried alive. And 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 right. just in case you missed it, she says it two or three times. She says it yes, multiple <laughs> times. That's what, I think what she's mumbling to herself as she walks to the cottage is that that the that she will be buried alive. And so, yeah, it's it's I'm 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 glad that my kids did not catch the full weight of what being buried alive would mean. Yeah. Uh, Fortunately, that's not something you think about when you're six years old. Yeah. But actually, yeah, we did uh, start to skip, skip some parts towards the end. We, you know, anytime she was kind of on the, on the scene, we didn't, we didn't see her, which, which led to a funny moment when, uh, you know, (laughs) we're, we're already skipping to the end of the movie here, but uh, when Snow White's baking the pies and then the witch shows up and so they don't want to watch it. So we kind of skipped ahead to where Snow White is, is well, well, they wanted to see the dwarves chase the the witch, but they missed the in-between part where she actually takes the bite of the apple. And so later my, my daughter says, did she ever finish making those pies? <laughs> <laughs> Do you think cause she, she made the one for grumpy. Do you think he ate it? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's awful to think about. Yeah. I don't know. What's you, you, since you skipped it, you missed what I think is remarkable about that scene, which is you never see Snow White eat the apple or collapse. The The camera stays on the hag the entire time. Oh, yeah, it does. And then I, I went back and rewatched it after they went to bed just gotcha. to make sure, just to be ready for the podcast. And Whew. yeah, that is it is really amazing. The there, there's a lot of tension in that scene. Like they did. They did a, a good job. And I think, you know, nowadays I feel like they would show it. They would show everything. But seeing seeing Snow White, just just her hand kind of pop out from behind the counter or table or whatever it is as she hits the floor, I think is much more powerful. Yeah. Yeah, there's something let's let's go ahead and make this highfalutin there's there's something um akin to greek tragedy in that right where all the all the all the violence in a greek tragedy always takes place off stage mostly because they didn't have a convincing way to show it on stage but it works because it it it's so much scarier when you don't see it i mean i i mean what are you what are you missing i guess her biting into an apple and collapsing but still right but yeah but it's it's much more intense watching the the witch stand there and kind of reciting what's happening to her right like her breath stills her blood her blood congeals so but yeah actually that was something this this kind of ties into where i did want to to start at the at the beginning of this movie and this is not the only disney movie that does this where they they um they start with the actual the book opening and there's a lot of text yeah yeah i i I thought about that too because like They'd never do that now because they wouldn't. They would assume most of the audience wouldn't be able to read it because it's children. Right. Did you yeah, read it out loud to, to your kids? 
I did. Yeah, I read it to them because uh, none of, none of them are reading yet. So, uh, but yes. Um, so we read that, and um, so what was interesting to me was I was I was wondering about the the medium of animation in itself, like what its what its kind of strengths are. But this is the first this is the first one, and so they're they're still experimenting and discovering that as well. And so the the framing device of having it open on a book and it also closes on the book kind of ties it to an older medium of how you would have received this tale. Yeah, that's I think that's a good point. It makes it it makes it more familiar in its way. I do have to correct you. This is not it, it's commonly called the first feature length animation. There was one in the twenties uh, that was not in English, so I think I think it, this is the first full length animation in English. Oh, I did not know that feature length, I should say. Yeah, but you're right. I mean, you definitely see you definitely see them figuring out what they can do with the medium, and and in fact, this was widely everybody thought it was going to be a big flop because they thought it was going to be ninety five minutes of silly symphonies type gags, you, you know? Right. And and yeah. that's not what it is. There's there's passages like that in the movie, but mostly it's this much more sedate, uh, somber story. Yeah. Well, you mentioned it. The the pacing of this movie is something that that jumped out at me as to or jumped out to me as well as I watched it was just that the how slow it is in parts. And some of that I know is just older films are are paced differently than than our modern sensibilities are but it also reminded me actually of of like japanese animation because a lot of the japanese animation is also very there's a lot more room to breathe and a lot more room to just kind of watch watch the characters interacting with each other or just watch a you know a, a scene open you know like uh kind of the 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 window dressing or whatever becomes actually the main focus in, in certain passages. And I think that's really, I, I really loved it. I, I really liked that. I liked how slow it was in parts. And I thought it was just, I've not seen it in a really long time. I don't remember when I watched it uh, prior to this. Um, but I just thought it was extremely beautiful in places. The, the artwork itself. I mean, the artwork doesn't look like any of the other movies. That's for sure. Yeah. And I think part of that was them realizing what <laughs> what does it take to to make one of these, and and of course they had to uh, they had to ex- expedite the process a little bit with the with the future movies just to stay uh, stay in the black or, or whatever. But they poured a lot of you can tell they poured a lot of time and and man hours into this one. Yeah, and 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 Disney actually brought in European storybook illustrators to to mm-hmm. to ask their opinions on how to do the backgrounds and things like that. And and here's a here's a technical note. I I watched all the documentaries on the DVDs, so uh, I did buy the uh, eight disc or whatever. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's just two discs. Uh, but um, they they had to invent a special kind of camera to do this movie. Oh yeah, talk a little bit about that. I I I I'm aware of this, but I I I find the the techno the technology side of how how these movies get made to be really fascinating. So. 
Yeah, so so they, they invented what's called a multi-plane camera, and I wish this was a video podcast because I could certainly demonstrate it um, with my hands more easily than I can when I'm speaking. But imagine a, a coffee table, and now imagine like five coffee tables stacked on top of each other with a camera looking down. Now imagine that all the coffee tables are clear. They're glass. On each one of them, you would have a layer of the background or the foreground um, in cell animation, right? So the, the background would not would, would be filled in, but all the other ones would be partially clear. You, you've, seen, you've seen animation cells. You know what I'm talking about. Yes, yes, I, then, know, I know exactly what you're talking about. And then uh, for each shot, and there, you know, there's 10,000 shots, um, for, for each one of them, some minor element of one or more of the of the uh, sheets changes, and and that that's how it works. Well, they had to invent this because if you only had one or two layers, you wouldn't be able to do the sort of um, scrolling backgrounds and uh, zoom in zooming cameras that that they do in this movie that makes it look like a almost in a way like a live action movie as opposed to the the silly symphony shorts that precede it. Um, so, right. so it's you, very yeah, it's right. immersive to as as the as the camera moves in that way it really immerses you in a way that that you wouldn't get if it was just a single it, if this was like a flip book it's not this not the same sort of thing right the the animation in the in the silly symphony shorts and i love those shorts they, they're they're very funny they're many of them are very well done but the animation's not incredible <laughs> you, you know th- this this movie is a breakthrough for animation that then informs not only the future movies, but the future shorts. So the shorts themselves become much more sophisticated after Snow White. Um, and, and Snow White shows off throughout, right? So the, I think the very first shot is of clouds moving on a background, which there's okay. nothing like that in any of the silly symphonies. Like the, I don't, I don't know that you could have done it without the multiplane camera. And the, the other shot that comes to mind is at the end of Hi Ho, the dwarves are all walking home. And in the foreground, there's a waterfall that you're that you're looking at them through. Oh, right. So yes. It's, it's this constantly moving water. That's 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 them showing off. We can do this now, so let's do it. I mean, right. it's, it's great. I'm not like criticizing them, obviously. No, I I feel like they were actually quite well, and it's hard to tell, right? Because we've never we've never really watched anything pre multiplane camera, right? Like, I mean, as like our norm. So yeah, and when we for, do, we experience us, it as being just, very very primitive right for us this is just what what movies do but if you're if you know to look for it you can see it in a few places um that they're that they're doing it that they're pulling it off like those ones that you mentioned or the other one that i think comes to mind is i believe it's at the end of um whistle while you work when they kind of zoom out of the cottage and you kind of you get you get from the window out into the woods and you kind of get a a long a long zoom out shot of that. Yeah. And, and but overall, also, I feel like they were actually restrained in their use of it. Like it's not, it's, it's, you know, like in our, in our modern day with the 3d, um, sometimes, you know, they, it's overdone where they're, they're really showing off what they can do with the 3d and it's, it's everywhere. Whereas this, I feel like it seems in hindsight, at least it seems restrained, but maybe at the time it didn't. But, yeah, I don't, I, that, that'd be an interesting question is to, to look at what – there's no, there'd be no such thing in 1938 as an animation historian. But it would be looking, it would be interesting to see what people were saying at the time, whether this was show-off-y. Because it, it feels quaint to us, I think, because the technology has gone so much beyond it. 
Mm. Uh, the other the other cool shot I was thinking of is uh, speaking of singing into wells at the end of I'm wishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a shot from inside the well looking out and the water is, is rippling. Yes. It's a very Breaking Bad type of shot. <laughs> well, I thought they just nailed the water on all of these. You think about um, just how hard it must be to draw water in that way. And even, uh, again, skipping over to Pixar, when they were you know trying to figure out water and what water looks like for, um, I think must have been finding Nemo. They're inventing all of these things to try and get the the computer to draw it properly. But in this in this movie, they're drawing it by hand and uh there's the wishing well scene. There's the scene when the when the animals are taking uh Snow White to the cottage for the first time and they're walking next to the stream and their their reflections are there on the water and it's just it's so beautiful. And then the other one uh it that really stood out to me was when the dwarves first uh discover the the pot of food boiling in their house and the, the steam is coming off of it and they're they're behind the steam and you see that distortion as though you're like looking through steam and it's there's there's yeah, those are the, the places in the movie that just really jumped out to me it's like wow this is just amazing that they that anybody can draw like this and then it just again it's probably that some of that is probably that multi-plane camera at work but still, you think about the number of man hours that must have gone into making this movie. It's just uh, yeah. incredible. And woman hours. My favorite story about making of the movie, I don't think they had any female animators, but the, the colorists were mostly women. And uh, Snow White came out of color, and she looked washed out. She was too pale. And one of the, one of the color girls, which is what they called them, uh, pulled out her compact and put rouge on, on the cell. Okay. <laughs> and Disney said, well, that looks great, but I'm afraid that you're not going to be able to put rouge on the same place on every cell. And it's, you know, if you, if you, if you do it wrong, it's going to look like her cheeks are moving back and forth. And the woman says, Mr. Disney, what do you think we do every day? <laughs> <laughs> so if, if Snow White looks, uh, if, if her cheeks look uh, realistic, it's because of this. As far as I know, nobody knows the name of the woman who, who saved it. But uh, she, it, it's real rouge on every single cell. That's wonderful. And I actually read there's, there's 1,500 different colors in the movie, and every single one of them was made at Disney Studios. Yeah, Disney was a real believer in, in the making making the whole package himself you know like i mean not not himself personally but wanting wanting that whole from beginning to end uh control over things um right have you read the uh have you read the biography of him by uh neil what's his name neil gammond i believe i have not no yeah is that a positive biography or a negative one uh i feel like it was mostly positive yeah it's definitely not overly negative I didn't feel like it was like uh, what's it called when they they make like a saint of somebody hagiography. Yeah, I, I I could see the word in my head, but I don't know if I've ever said it out loud, so I was afraid to say it. Uh, hagiography. I don't I don't feel like it's that, but I read it years ago. I, I read a little bit um, brushing up uh, on the on the Snow White era as we were as a just in preparation for the podcast, but. Probably it will come up again, I'm sure, as we as we walk through this. Well, how much, uh, given what you read in that book, how much do you think this movie is the product of Walt Disney's imagination, and how much of it is a group effort? Because I think that's a 
that's a consistent struggle in the movies that are made when uh, Walt, who I'm going to call by his first name to distinguish from the studio, when Walt was alive. Because I, I think um, I, I think you have this kind of two views of history, right? The, the great man theory of history where Walt Disney is this unimaginable genius who comes up with everything. And then you have a, another view, which is that, oh, well, really, this is these are all the product of thousands of people working together and it's sometimes in cross purposes. What, what sense yeah. do you have about how, how much in control is Walt Disney of this movie? Well, it seems like, you know, um, if anybody who, who has done any sort of, uh, deep dives into Disney and how they make their movies, they've, they've seen the storyboard artists who, you know, they basically plot the whole movie on, like uh, index cards basically uh, before they make the film. And then it's part of the story bar storyboard artists job is to actually bring those to life, not through animation, but through, you know, because they're just stills um, to, to basically act the in-between parts. And um, part of the part of being a great storyboard artist is being that great actor and by all accounts, uh, or at least I, I shouldn't say all accounts, by the account of this one book that I've read on uh, on Walt, he was he was an incredible actor as well, and so he brought a lot of the story to life for his uh, for his animators, and really, you know, would kind of single handedly put on these performances of Snow White um, to to basically sell the vision and get everybody on board and get everybody excited. Um, but along with that, then, uh, he was very collaborative in the sense of, uh, he wanted everybody to send in, you know, their ideas for the different gags and, and the different things that you, that you see in the movie, the, you know, like in, in the cottage scene, all those, all those little things that the animals are doing where, the, whether it's, you know, uh, the, the squirrels sweeping the dust under the rug and then sweeping it into the, into the mouse hole or the, you know, um, the chipmunks swirling up the, the spider webs with their tails. Like any, any of those little like, um, things like that, I think all, all come more from the animators themselves. It seems like from, at least from, from this account of this book. I think they got paid $5 a gag. Like if you, if your gag got used in the movie, you got an extra five bucks, which is, I don't know, 50 bucks today, a hundred bucks. It's, it's more than five bucks for sure. Yeah. So, and actually, you know, some of them really, uh, it was, it was funny rewatching it. Uh, you mentioned not having remembered seeing it as a child. I definitely, it was not one that we watched frequently. Um, we had it when I was a kid, but, but you know, certain, there were certain movies that, that just, we basically broke the VCR tape on. We watched them so many times, but this was not one of them. But the the things that I remembered were almost entirely from that whistle while you work scene. Like I I, I could remember all of those little uh, all of those little gags. So that's an, the, the, the things I remembered were all from um, the the silly song, the one where the dwarves are all playing their instruments and dancing with Snow White. But that's because oh, yeah. that got used in a package Christmas. Uh, special called From All of Us to All of You. Mm -hmm. They they use that scene. So I've seen that scene 20 times more than I've seen the movie because we used to watch it every year. Yeah. I'm sure sure I saw Whistle while you work on like Disney sing-along videotapes when I was a kid. Yeah. It's interesting that the technologies we're talking about just 
don't exist anymore, right? I mean, they don't put out they don't put out package films for Christmas anymore. They don't wearing out VHS tapes. I'm 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 sure anybody who's we're both in our 30s. I'm sure anybody who's our age is is thinking about those big puffy uh VHS uh cases that that Disney oh, used to yes. put out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, so they all look nice together but they look ridiculous against any any other movie. That's right, yeah. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go to your Goodwill and look in the VHS section. You'll see 10,000 That's of right. Them. That's right. Find those big puffy cases there. They're great. White, right? They're white around the edges. Yeah. They really are hideous. Yes. <laughs> just, just, I actually I completely forgot about those until you just mentioned them, so it's great. It's... So another another thing that's new with this movie in 1937-38 is that this is the first movie to ever have a, a soundtrack released alongside the movie. Did you know that? Oh, they 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 released it on like an LP. Uh huh. Well, I, yeah, I, I suppose it was an LP. It may have been a. When did they switch from 78s to LP? It may still be a. 78. Oh, that's a great. Oh, it probably was a 78. You're probably right. Whatever. It's the first. It's the first to have a released soundtrack. Um, I had no idea. Yeah. So yeah. This is news. News to me. To the degree you can call Walt Disney a genius, uh, marketing's got to have something to do with it, right? For sure. Because eventually, yes, eventually he just sells himself. Uh, and not. A, I don't mean that in a nasty way, but if you if you think about the like uh, the wonderful world of Disney, that is that is Walt Disney selling himself as a personality. So mm-hmm. so I mean he he's always he's always on the cutting edge of how to make how to make more money off of uh off of off of his properties off off of his creations let's say i don't want to make it sound negative i have yeah. a very complicated relationship with walt disney i should say I, I i really admire him in a lot of ways and i um he seems like such a good guy and yet that company does so many so many underhanded things and i i know that it did when he was in charge of it too although i'd like to think less so <laughs> Oh sure. Well, just blame it on Roy. Yeah. Walt, Walt was pure. Michael Eisner. Blame it. On, blame it on Michael Eisner. Yeah, that's fine. You blame it on him as well. What do you think? What do you um, think of the music in the movie? Oh well, that's interesting. I think. What's the What's the first song that we encounter? Is the uh, I'm, I'm wishing. I'm wishing. I do not care for. I was actually. I was wondering if it was catchy in the 1930s. Like I was wondering if it was 1930s catchy or if it was just not very catchy. But the um but the other songs in the movie, I think are I mean maybe they've just become so much a part of the culture like you said through these through these packages that we were talking about earlier. Um like whistle while you work or um even hi ho they're they're a little more in my in my brain, and so then maybe that makes them them seem catchier because there's that familiarity to them. Yeah, I'm I'm wishing is a weird little song, and it's it, there's actually I'm wishing, and it's like a medley between that and the Prince's song, which is called One Song. Right, and actually, One Song I think is is the nicer of the two, 
And maybe some of that is just the voice. Also, I was, I was no wondering if you dislike her vocals. Yeah, her vocals are are hard to listen to. Her name they're, is uh, Adriana Casalotti, I think is the is how that's pronounced. Okay. Yeah, they're a little too high, or something. They're semi-operatic. Like they, yeah, maybe that's what it is, and maybe that's again them trying to figure out the medium, right? Like. Because they never do it again, right? I mean, there's no, there's no other, not that I can think of. There, there's never another operatic vocal. Right. I was trying to actually. I was, I was noticing. So even on uh, in the in that beginning one, the, where I'm wishing you get her uh, harmonizing with herself through the echo, which um, you get again in Cinderella when she's, uh, which we'll get to at, at some point, where she's, you know, doing the the bubbles and the bubbles the Cinderella and the, the reflection of Cinderella and the bubbles harmonize with the actual Cinderella. Um, so that, that seems similar to me. I did not remember and then, that. Um, and then actually, so I was going to ask you about this was the, what do you, do you think this was purposeful? Is there something to it or is it just uh, what, you know, was it just a coincidence? The, the I'm wishing has the, the echoing and the, in the well and then the dwarves, when we first meet the dwarves, they are they're singing hi ho and they're echoing down the uh, down the halls of the mine. Oh, that's an interesting point. I, hadn't, I didn't think of, and they they do the echo gag there, right? Yes. Where, where the yeah, uh, where the, the echo, echo doesn't actually back. match. Yes, it sings back something else. Yeah. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That that kind of connects them from the beginning. Yeah. What do you think about the music? Uh, it's not my favorite. I mean, hi, everybody loves "Hi Ho." "Hi Ho" is a great song. Mm-hmm. Um, although yeah. it's it's funny to me when people sing that song, they always sing, "It's off to work I go." But I yeah. mean, it, that's actually the reprise. the The main song is they're coming home from work, and yeah. I, I've always liked "Someday My Prince Will Come." Uh, although you know it's a corny song. Yeah, but it's 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 not it's not so bad. But yeah, I, the 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 semi operatic style she sings in throws me off too I, I don't really like opera singers singing pop music right how about the uh the song that she sings with the birds after she's been afraid with a smile and a song yes what did you think about that whole scene that that seems interesting because she's so connected with nature right from from the very beginning you have all these animals who just like can't stay away from her they love her so much and then like mm-hmm. she runs into the forest and she imagines that nature is a scary thing instead of a friendly thing and that with yeah. a smile and a song is her response to that she says i'm i'm so ashamed of myself for yes. for feeling that way yeah it went it went real into mr rogers territory there i felt like yeah if you're just optimistic good things will come to you well, and it, yes, that too. But uh, I feel like Mr. Rogers is always on the, uh, you know, trying to deal with your emotions in a healthy way. And so here she is afraid. And, and how do you deal? You know, she asks the birds, like, what do you do when you're afraid? And they tell her, oh, you sing. And so then she sings and then that makes her feel better, which I thought was, you know, I mean, it's it's true. And it's actually, I mean, there's, there's parallels there in uh, – you know, other, you know, in, in, in Tolkien, for example, you know, uh, when, uh, when Sam is afraid and he's, you know, when he's, uh, lost Frodo and he, and he sings, uh, in order to find Frodo and also to, 
you know, also to, to face his fears. So are, are you not going to say they sang as they slew? <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know if they're singing in fear there, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, yeah, I think, I think the idea of that is, is interesting. I just, uh, it, it, it caught me off guard as I was watching it. I was like, Oh, this is really, uh, it's like, are they, are they trying to, to do a, a kind of an emotionally healthy sort of message here in the middle of this, this movie, um, for kids or. Yeah. Or that's one exactly of the places it really seemed like it was for kids. It, it's hard to tell mm-hmm. who the audience for this movie is. Cause, um, what TV tropes calls the animation age ghetto didn't really exist in 1937. So adults, mm-hmm. adults saw these uh, b- before you would go see a quote unquote grown up movie. There was, there would be a cartoon in front of it at the movie theater. So, and right. I, I think parts of this are clearly, aimed at adults the the all the stuff with grumpy complaining that women's women's pison um yeah i i i think that's that those are gags for adults as much as for children certainly the um certainly the wicked witch stuff is is for adults but this this really did seem like they're, they're trying to let the children in the children in the audience get a uh a positive moral message message whether you think that's a positive message or not yeah and then, yeah, that's where, yeah, it's it's very childish in that area because that's when when she asks them if they know a place that she can stay because she says, you know, I can't I can't sleep in a ground like you and they shake their heads and I can't sleep in a <laughs> in a nest like you and they shake their heads. And it's just, it's really funny, but I find I think the connection to nature thing is is the most interesting thing to come. You know, that's that's very really strong in that scene that she seems to have the ability to talk with animals and communicate with animals and on some level. And well, it's very important. The Prince does too. When, when he sings one song, this dove like falls in love with him. This, this lady well, dove. Oh, I, I found that very funny. The, the, because snow, snow white kisses the dove and then sends it down to him. And then the, the dove delivers the kiss. So it's like a, it's like a, a messenger pigeon for, <laughs> kissing right but i i the the good characters in this in this movie are are connected to nature in a way that the witch is not now the, the witch controls nature um but that, that's what magic has always done and and what what's most interesting to me about the witch and nature is that when she's making the concoction that'll turn the turn her i think it's to turn herself into the hag but it may be to make the poison apple um she uses a a, a lightning bolt to to create it so she's she's controlling the storm but then yes. what what ends up killing her is a lightning bolt that she does not control when she's trying yes. to when she's trying to push the boulder onto the dwarves uh, a storm knocks her off of the cliff and she dies a really horrific death i have to say she oh, she sure. falls off this mountain and then you you see the boulder fall on top <laughs> of her the boulder falls on top of her also and then the and then the to add insult to injury there the 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 buzzards or the vultures swoop down also. Right. right. Well, and, and there too, like the, those vultures have been following her since she's, since she's gone out for snow white and, and you assume that they're kind of her servants, but they're not her servants. They were just waiting for her to die or for, I guess for anybody to die so that they yeah, can eat for somebody. Them. They knew death was around her somehow in some way. So, so she has this like false connection to nature where she's, she's controlling it. It's, 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 it's interesting to me that, when Walt is putting all this together, he refers to the magic mirror as her, as her slave, her unwilling slave, I think is the phrase he uses. 
Yeah, it's well, it's in the uh, in the opening lines that she says. She says, uh, "Slave within the mirror, come forth." So, like nobody, nobody is serving her willingly the way the the animals clearly do for Snow. They help her clean the dwarf's cottage, and they oh, screw yeah. it up because they're animals. And you know, why would they? Why yeah. would they know how to clean human things? Yeah, or dwarf. And they things? Get, she gives them all the worst jobs. Wow. She takes the broom, which is, I mean, sweeping's easy compared. Well, I mean, maybe that's just personal preference, but I don't know. I think I I'd know. better wash dishes than sweep. Really? Okay. Yeah. You don't have to. You don't have to bend over it. But they didn't. Well, hang on. Didn't they? Um, they swept too, right? Because they the the chipmunks swept the dirt into the mouse hole. That's right. Yeah, that's one of the gags. Is the 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 squirrels or the chipmunks are are, are sweeping into the mouse hole? Yeah. Or whoever. And then the mouse the mouse sweeps it all back out because apparently there's a very a neat a neat mouse living within the mess of the of the dwarf's home. Well, hey, I mean, if you were a mouse, you wouldn't want somebody the 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 pile of the pile of dust they sweep in there is the size of the mouse hole. That's true. That's very true. talk about how the dwarves are characterized dwarfs i'm sorry did you i i didn't realize this dwarfs was the old way to say it and it's actually tolkien who popularized dwarves with a v yeah i i actually i just read this yesterday um when i was looking into trying to trying to figure out about about these dwarves i think that is a good thing to, to move into talking about next but the the irony of him kind of saying that he messed that up as a philologist that he it should be dwarfs and not dwarves but he kind of made an error and then it was so popular that it it took off and yeah dwarfs just sounds wrong yes it does he hated this movie tolkien did he oh yeah i'm sure i was i i yeah well the yeah, so let's talk about the dwarves because, or the dwarfs, whatever they are. And that's because, that's exactly um, what he hated too. He hated the dwarves. Well, I would think so because they're so very different than uh, what we would think of as a Tolkien dwarf, right? And it's worth pointing out um, the Hobbit is published three months before this movie premieres. So. Yeah. So I yeah, actually, I'm so glad that you brought this up because this is something that I would I was hoping that we would talk about a little bit is. You know, um, I think you've got to think in, in, you know, man on the street type terms, if you were to approach somebody and ask them about dwarves, what, you know, what is the image that's going to pop into their head would either be, uh, you know, one of the dwarves from Snow White or they would be a Tolkien fan. Right. Right. Gimli. Gimli, is that the guy's name? Yeah, Gimli. Listeners to the Christian Humanist podcast will remember that I don't like Tolkien. <laughs> <laughs> and and I've brought him up several times here already. No, too. I mean it's completely but... appropriate to bring him up. I mean his his uh his dislike for this movie is very interesting to me. And uh and, and has been getting a lot of it's been making the rounds on social media the last six months or so. Yeah, so what's the um 
Yeah, what do you what do you think about the dwarves? I, I was, even as I was watching it, I was trying to kind of figure out um, both what they what they represent and also how are they different from you know if you were to, if you were to get in a time machine and ask somebody before Snow White and the Seven Dwarves about a about a dwarf, what would their what would their conception be? Is this you know I'm I'm assuming that that Disney has transformed. Uh, what people would have thought of as a dwarf um, somewhat, but that's, that's just an assumption on my part. Actually, I'll tell you where that comes from is from um, the, uh, the Rick Riordan novels. Um, He, he's doing a series, a young adult series uh, that, that echoes the Norse mythology. And so he has a dwarf in there. And so I'm assuming that the Rick Riordan dwarf is, is closer to what actual Norse, dwarves would be like although um that might be a wrong assumption to be making i wish david grubbs were here to tell us about the role of dwarves in northern european mythology and folklore uh but he's not um so i I mean what i can tell you is what they do in the Grimm's fairy tale uh that this comes from which is nothing um there are seven dwarves who do not have names and they are all completely identical uh, they they don't have distinguishing features from one another, so they kind of operate in a block. And and mm-hmm. Disney's big innovation is that the seven dwarfs here do not operate in a block. They all have different personalities. They disagree with each other. They even move differently. There's a there's a story about um, there's a story about Dopey who at one point in the movie they were animating him, and he had to catch up with everybody else because he'd been going the wrong way, and so they put a hitch in his step. Uh, and and Walt Disney liked it so much that he demanded that every time uh, Dopey walked with the rest of the dwarves, he have a hitch in his step and have to catch up. Oh, that's great! Because I was actually, as I watched that, I was thinking, oh, now this is a this has become almost a trope because you see it in other Disney movies uh, where there's somebody at the end of the line who who then has to get the hitch in their step to catch up. Like I, the one that immediately jumped into my mind was the the elephant in uh jungle book the, yeah, the child elephant, that's right um has to do the hitch in its step to get it catch up and i believe also when we get to fantasia that the the mushrooms isn't the one of the i think this could be my memory playing tricks on me because i haven't seen fantasia um nearly as recently but i think one of the the mushrooms and the mushroom dance have a hitch in its step as well so, so the big thing, the big thing that that Disney does is gives the seven dwarfs personalities, personalities that are spelled out by their names. Um, not all the dwarfs get a whole lot of screen time. Bashful, for example, I don't think has a whole lot to do besides pull his beard up over his face. And mm-hmm. but certainly Grumpy is very important because uh, he he resists Snow White but really loves her more than any of the other ones do. Yes, and uh, he's the hero in the end. He, he is, and and. Doc, who I did not remember, speaks in malapropisms. Yeah, and uh, uh, spoonerisms, right? Spoonerisms, not malapropisms. I was uh, I was deeply annoyed by Doc. Did you notice they got the word crappy in because of because oh, I of did Doc? Not notice that. Yeah, because he's trying to say apple dumplings one. and he says crappy something. Yeah, well, I thought, wow. Um, and and then <laughs> then Dopey, uh, who I do not remember being as annoying as I found him. Uh, watching through the movie this time, but I was supremely annoyed by Dopey. Really? Yeah, I'm with um, uh, I'm with Tolkien on this one. <laughs> Did you like Dopey? Well, I think. Well, I. 
so Tolkien is obviously very um, – he's got a, a lot more skin in the game as far as you know what makes a good dwarf than I do. <laughs> That's true, I yeah. Can, in, in my mind, I can, I can completely disassociate these from anything to do with Tolkien. Although the one, the one thing that I did notice was the level of craftsmanship um, in both their home and even in the mine. Um, I felt like that was a holdover from what I would think of as being a dwarf. Like you think about like their clocks, um, or you think about, uh, in their, in their, in their home, all of their beds are, you know, carved with different symbols and, uh, mostly rabbits and things, but different symbols with their names. All the, the stairs look like little owls or something that they go up. Um, like everything is, is ornate and carved. And I feel like, uh, just a high level of, of craftsmanship, um, which I would associate with a dwarf, would be a craftsman of some sort. Yeah, I just thought it made them medieval German. Well, maybe. Maybe that too. But maybe all medieval Germans are dwarves, and we're both right. Well, they they, they originate in that area, right? But did, did you find... The, the did mythology you, of it? Did you not find Dopey annoying? He gets so much screen time. He does get a lot of screen time. I, yeah, I didn't find him annoying though, but yeah, I I could see how someone would, but I I didn't. You, you pointed out before we started recording that he's he's an XP for Harpo Marx. Oh, for sure. He yeah, I I didn't see the Marx Brothers until much later after I saw uh, Snow White, and so I had to kind of get the chronology right in my head. But but Harpo was definitely before before this right like oh absolutely yeah yeah so um yeah seems seems very obvious to me that they were that they were trying to do a harpo and i like harpo too so maybe it's you know do you find harpo annoying i don't know that i've ever seen a marx brothers movie oh okay i'm sad to say well we'll have to put that on the docket too maybe after yeah, we, we can, get done with the pixar we can, we can watch through all the marx brothers movies danny anderson i don't know if they're on that yeah i don't know if they're all worth seeing but there's definitely some good ones so but yeah what what did you find uh so annoying about him i don't know i i thought he was ugly for one thing i thought most of the dwarves were kind of cute but i thought his ears were too big mm. I, I i found him to look like kind of a disgusting baby does yeah. that make sense? I don't like babies anyway, but like he's an extra disgusting baby. I, I don't know. He moved his ears. He got so much. He got so much screen time. Maybe I'm. Maybe I'm. Maybe I'm just being shallow. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know. It's different. Different tastes for different people, I guess. He he uh, stands. Yeah. He stands in that line of of silent Disney characters, which I, I guess begins with Pluto. But also mm. Tinkerbell and and there's others that I can't think of. These these characters who often end up being the most um, popular part of their movie, and and end up being the the icons, especially in the parks, but who don't actually say anything. And that's kind yeah. of cool. I love Tinkerbell, but well, there's um, a power to that, right? Like mm-hmm. if they never say anything, they also never say anything stupid or anything that. I mean, I think about this with like Star Wars, how brilliant it was for in the original Star Wars films to have multiple characters who never say anything comprehensible, right? R2-D2 and Chewbacca being the main ones. Um, so Phenomenally popular, you, right? Everybody loves both of those characters. Right. And But as the audience member, 
you get to fill in the dialogue, whatever you think they're saying. And so it's, if it's bad dialogue, it's on you. It's, you know, it's never, oh, I could, I, why'd they say that? Or they could have said that better or, or whatever, you know, like it, it completely removes, um, removes that, that failure that, that you would, you would get sometimes. And so. Or a silent Bob from the, from the Kevin Smith movies. Yeah, there you go. Boomhauer from King of the Hill. Uh, the other thing yeah. with with animation in particular, if the character's not talking, you're going to have to put in more work animating him. Mm, that's true. So I, I haven't looked at, at the way animated movies work is there's a supervising director who kind of runs the whole show. And then there'll be animators who are, I think, often called directors who who handle particular characters. And I, I should have looked it up, but I, I wonder if Dopey had his own animator um, as opposed to the other dwarves being in, in groups. Because I would think the animation on Dopey would be more difficult than the animation on the other dwarves. Even yeah, the even the, so. the popular ones, even Grumpy and Doc. Yeah. So the dwarves are definitely very di- – they're not human. Like they're very different. Then I mean they don't they don't behave as human adults would even though they're all of an adult age. Well, she well, we calls really them children. She calls them children and she treats them like children. Yep, she acts like their mother, which is funny because in the original, she's the child. Like like the original, it's much closer to like Goldilocks. She she goes in and doesn't she can't sleep in a couple of the beds and then she finds one that's perfect and they come home and who's that sleeping in my bed. But mm. but she is the child. Like they they're having to protect her from the wicked queen because she's too dumb. In, in the in the original fairy tale, the wicked queen actually gets her three times. She comes and first she puts on a corset and chokes her almost to death, and the dwarves come and save her. And they say, "Hey, don't let her in again." And then she lets <laughs> her in again, <laughs> and she uses a poison comb, and she almost dies. And the dwarves say, "Hey, don't let her in again." And then, then she does, and, and then she, that, that's when the apple happens. This time, right. Snow White's not so dumb. I mean, like she is, she is kind of the adult in that relationship. Mm. Um, and and even when she does get let in, it's not because she's stupid; it's because she's compassionate. Her her heart is so pure; she can't even imagine that. This woman whom she's trying to help is has has something to do to her, so I, oh, I think right. I think that's an interesting difference that that Snow White we we see her, I think is kind of retrograde. Uh, certainly of the Disney princesses, she has the least personality, but mm. compared to the original story, she's actually kind of a liberated woman in her way. Yeah. In her way. In her way. <laughs> I mean, still it it's pretty it's pretty retrograde. That's true. I was yeah, I was actually thinking about that today because I figured we would eventually get to some of the 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 gender things that are that are within this movie. Um, do you want to do you want to jump off on that direction or do you want to stay on dwarves a little longer? Uh, whichever one you I mean we could we could cover both at once and talk about Grumpy's uh, misogyny. Yeah, so yeah, you're right. So Grumpy seems to be the only one well, besides Doc Grumpy and Doc maybe are the only ones who have any seem to have any experience and very little experience even with females or girls or anything, right? Like, I mean, when they first see when they first see her, most of them don't even know what she is, right? They, they're <laughs> like, "What is it?" Well, if you haven't seen this movie in a while, the scene where they almost kill her takes fifteen minutes. It's very, very long. <laughs> it's much longer than you remember it being. 
But it has my favorite, I think my favorite line in the whole movie, which is, which end do we kill? (laughs) I like uh, all females as pies and they're full of wicked wiles. And they ask him what wicked wiles are. And he says, I don't know, but they they all got him. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's the thing. The, The grumpy is definitely played for laughs in that way. And it's also very much, um, I mean, he's, yeah, he's by far the most misogynistic, but he's, he's shown as a fool in his, in his misogyny, right? Like none of that, none of his misogyny is, is seen as in any way heroic or, or the way that, you know, that men or dwarves ought to be acting. And he doesn't right? even mean it. Like, like there's the, the scene where they're leaving in the morning and, and she's kissing them all on the forehead and he is preparing right. himself to be kissed in a way that makes it clear that he would like that. But then yes. he acts like he doesn't want it. So, <laughs> right. like the implication is, even when he's, even when he's spouting off this misogynistic gibberish, he's just playing to who he, what his public role is. I mean, when your right. name is Grumpy, you can't act <laughs> friendly. So what what struck me actually seeing that is I was wondering if Grumpy's, uh, you you could almost call that a vanity, right? Mm-hmm. The the that he is, he's putting on this appearance of something different than what he actually is or what he actually feels. And so I was wondering, um, I guess we have, now we have multiple topics that, that we can run up against, but, um, you know, how, how grumpy's vanity plays against, uh, the witch's vanity. Yeah. In a movie, in a movie that's clearly about vanity. Cause, yeah. cause his is maybe is his, can we play his for laughs because he's male? Maybe, maybe that's when, when yeah, men are when men are vain, it's it's ridiculous, and when women are vain, it's sinister. Oh, that's yeah. That that could be could be right. Her vanity I is think, her vanity is horrifying, right? I mean, and, yeah, and, her vanity is and self negating in a way because she, the whole movie takes place as everybody knows because she wants to be the fairest in the land. Her solution to not being the fairest in the land is to make herself horrifyingly ugly. And while she's horrifyingly ugly, she exclaims, uh, now I'll be the fairest in the land. Yes. Yeah. I was, I was thinking the exact same thing. Like how, what, what irony. Yeah. But it's actually fairly understated as far as a, cartoon goes mm-hmm. like i don't think they i don't think they it's not like a voice comes on and says oh look and the ugly queen thinks she's pretty i that wouldn't really work with the movie maybe it's not as subtle as i thought it was the other interesting gender thing i see is that and this i think marks it as an american movie more than betraying its fairy tale origins is that women are a civilizing force this is what women are throughout American literature. So you think of like Rip Van Winkle. Rip Van Winkle goes off into the woods to get away from his horrible shrewish wife. Or mm-hmm. uh, our Huck Finn specifically sails down the Mississippi because he, uh, he he doesn't want to be civilized by Aunt, Aunt Polly, the widow yes. Douglas. Um, yeah. And then like in Rabbit Ron, Updike's Rabbit Ron, he's, he's, he's fleeing south to get away from the, the choking northern cities full of women. And that happens here too. I mean, the the first thing Snow White does is make them wash up for dinner, which they apparently have no experience of. Right, because it's not New Year's. Right, right. Um, in a deleted song, she teaches them table manners, because it, oh. you'll remember they're basically animals. 
when they sit right. down to, to dinner. And and Grumpy even calls them nanny goats because they bathe. I mean, he 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 thinks they've been made effeminate by their yeah. capitulation to Snow White's table manners. Right. So, so which then turns on him because they all attack him, and they it's actually they who make him effeminate by putting the the flowers in his hair and, and calling him so cute. You you will be civilized whether you like it or not. Just the, yeah. the 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 presence of women. It, it it is like I'm glad they didn't make that prequel. But it would be interesting to know what their lives, what their evenings looked like before before Snow White moved in. I actually I thought about that also during the movie because I mean part of uh, they're definitely cultured in a way. I mean they, they don't have the what you're saying of you know they don't have any table manners and they don't wash up and uh, they don't clean, but they they have all those instruments that they all know how to play very well and they. Um, and earlier we talked about their craftsmanship and so there's, it's, it's not that they lack any culture at all. It's just that they have, uh, or different priorities or something. Yeah. And who among us hasn't wanted that organ? Oh, for sure. That organ, that organ is both, right? That's the craftsmanship and the, uh, and the, the culture of, of knowing how to play it and stuff. So and Grumpy, I imagine Grumpy plays it. Grumpy plays it, and he plays it well. As a drummer, you must love that they give the drums to Dopey. <laughs> <laughs> to Dopey, and but then later when Dopey is uh, Dopey is doing his his dance on top of Sneezy, um, I think Happy plays them for a little while too. I guess anybody can play the drums. <laughs> That's right. Well, they all seem they see, it seems like many of them are multi instrumentalists. So yeah, so they definitely the Dwarves have some sort of some sort of culture that they that they upkeep there. The dwarves are the ones that most clearly belong to a cartoon. I think the 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 dwarves and maybe the um, maybe the animals. I think I think the the studio is going for something a little more realistic with the queen and the prince and Snow White. But the mm-hmm. the dwarves they can kind of do their silly symphonies thing. I'll I'll be at a very high level silly symphonies. Yeah. But they yeah you're right. I mean the, even the drawing style is is different. Uh, from the dwarves to, I mean, it's not just that they're, you know, big ears and big noses and, and kind of cute and ugly at the same time, but they're I, just the whole style style of them is is they definitely look like they are not of this world in the way that maybe Snow White is more not photorealistic, but you know, like she's 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 drawn more realistically. She's not a Huntsman. caricature. Yeah, she's not a caricature. And the animals, I mean, even the animals are realistic animals. They're not they're, they're not even as anthropomorphized as the animals in Bambi are. That's right. Yeah. There's some similarities, but they're they definitely they they get to Bambi at a new level. Although I don't know if you if you picked up on this, I did was when um when Snow White is first in the house in the cottage and uh she's saying you'd think their mother would make them clean up and she realizes that they don't have a mother and she says oh they must be orphans and it 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 pans to the to the the deer and the baby <laughs> deer against the mother deer that's that's funny well yeah. and of course snow white's also an orphan yeah in a way right well as far as we know i mean i, mean, I would think I, yeah, that if her father her were mother? still alive the, the, the queen, queen is her, her stepmother mother? She's the first of many sinister step parents in okay. Disney. Well, Disney yeah, I thought, 
Yeah, in my head she was the stepmother, but then I didn't remember if they actually made that clear in the movie or if that was just, you know, evil stepmothers everywhere seeping into my own uh, reading of the movie. She is called a princess. So I guess it could be her mother, but my heavens, if it's her mother, it's even darker. Yeah. I I will point out the reason Snow White doesn't die is because the huntsman sees her trying to help a baby bird who has lost its parents find its parents again. That's right. There's a lot, a lot of, lot of orphan type things in this. I mean, I guess, yeah, that baby bird's not an orphan, but has lost its parents. Oh, so here's something horrible in the in the original. Um, you know, the queen wants in the movie the queen wants her heart in a box, which is horrifying. Mm-hmm. In the yes, original, she wants her her liver and her lungs, and she eats them. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's in Grimm's. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Can you imagine if she ate her heart, ate that pig's heart in the uh, in the movie? Yeah, because they don't they don't even show it in the movie. It's always in the box. It's a discretion shot. Yeah, I mean they they yeah they open the box, but they don't show you what's actually in the box. So, Ugh. yeah. So do you know? And again, maybe we sh- we should have invited uh, Doctor Grubbs onto the show for us here. But um, do you? So the original fairy tales is the audience all people or is it for children like were, were their children just much tougher stock than our children today are because I, I don't know if my kids could handle that childhood and and lord knows i'm not a historian of the 19th century but childhood as we think of it doesn't really exist until the victorian era the idea that that children are these kind of fragile beings that must be protected at all costs and 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 the the Victorian era, not unsurprisingly, is when you get your first dedicated children's books like Alice in Wonderland, Peter mm. Pan, for that matter. Although both of those books are very disturbing. Um, so I mean, children worked on the farm. You you know, I mean, children children weren't protected the way we think of children as being protected. So I I suspect they grew up faster. But mm. if we have somebody who knows more than I do about uh, pre eighteen fifty attitudes toward children i would love to hear it because that's not really my field of expertise oh yes i would love i would love to hear it too actually i was um yeah this is completely unrelated to the movies that we're talking about but i, I not completely um, unrelated well yeah because we talk about them semi-related but but yeah i uh I was thinking about that even in, within uh, the church because at our at our church we've been having a lot of discussions about what church should look like for kids for like the Sunday school versus the family style worship or or whatever and I was I was wondering through church history what you know how they dealt with kids you know because it's not not an area that has been that I know anything about but if if what you're saying is you know maybe they didn't even think about it pre Victorian era about what what kids would do in church but i remember having an argument i was on a committee at a church i used to go to and they didn't want to it was it was easter programming and the the children were supposed to learn about abraham and the ram and they didn't want to say that abraham was going to sacrifice isaac i I got apoplectic and said what i mean what are you what are you doing why are you telling the story if you're not going to have abraham about to sacrifice the, the whole reason to tell that story at Easter is that is that there's a substitution happening there that's very important so, sometimes I wonder if maybe we assume children can't handle things that they could handle 
But whatever that switch, t- whatever that switch is, it obviously takes place between the time the the Grimm's fairy tale is written down and the time Disney makes this movie, because he he pulls back um, pretty far on on the uh, the more disturbing elements of the story. Uh, have you read the the Grimm's original? Um, I have a. We have like the. Again, this is a word that I've only ever seen in print and not said out loud. The but the publishing company, the is it Usborn or Usborn? I don't know. I don't know. Um, but anyway, they put out a lot of uh, children's books and educational books and things like that. And so they they have uh, we have a whole set of fairy tales from them that are supposed to be pretty close to the original, but they're they've obviously been like the language is updated and stuff. So we have a version of Snow White. We have the one that you were talking about with the uh, where she gets tricked you know, three separate times. Um, so I have read that one. Cause, I don't cause know how at the end of the original, the... the queen, the queen is forced to wear shoes, iron shoes that have been heated up in a fire. She's mm. forced to put the, and it says specifically they were brought to her with tongs. That's how I love that detail. And then she, yeah. <laughs> she's forced to dance until she drops dead. So yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty disturbing. The the ending we have is, that's is actually, horrifying, but not as horrifying as that. You're right, but in in the uh, in this Walt Disney biography that I I, I mentioned earlier, uh, they actually mentioned that at one point they were talking about should we put that in the movie? Like that was you know that was on the table. Oh my as, gosh, as a possible ending. So we would be living in a I very think, different world if they'd done that. Oh yeah, for sure. I wonder if the movie would have if 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 feature length animation would have taken off if the if the first major American production had ended with the queen dying in that fashion. I, I wonder yeah. if that would have really changed the way animation worked from then on. Yeah, whether it would have flopped as people all thought it would, or if it would have become, you know, a more adult. Uh, genre from the beginning if we wouldn't have had this what did you call it earlier the ghetto the ghetto of animation animation age ghetto is what they call it on tv tropes okay yeah so yeah you're right parallel parallel universe there with a with a witch dancing to to her death Disney World, Josh, or Disneyland? I've not actually been to either of them. Because they used to have, so. they got rid of it at Disney World in favor of this roller coaster that I'm not terribly impressed by, but they used to have a, an attraction called Snow White's Scary Adventures, which uh, for, you know, 50 years scared the absolute crap out of generations of children. <laughs> 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 the the one that scared me when I was a kid. It, it, this is the tamest ride. Like like you were in a in a like a mine car and you go very slowly. It's a dark ride, but at one point you're you're driving behind the queen and she's she's talking to herself in the mirror, um, and from behind she's the queen. But then she turns around and it's the hag, and mm-hmm. I, I mean I I flipped my wig 
when I saw that as a kid. It it still scared me as an adult a little bit, but uh, they they actually had to add scary to the the name of the attraction because it scared so many children. So many so many kids got on there thinking it was going to be fun dwarf time, and uh, it, yeah. it was mostly just. Uh, this this horrifying queen trying to kill you the the uh, the writer over and over again. I'm sure as we go That's... through these, I'll talk about their appearances at the theme parks. Yeah, I would love that. But the that's actually something I also noticed in this movie this time around is because you like in you know it's funny what what your what your memory does when you think of the movie versus actually watching the movie. I thought I thought the queen had a much larger role, but she's very background in this movie mm-hmm. most of the movie is snow white with the animals or snow white with the dwarves like there's there's not a lot happening with the queen she's monomaniacal she has one thing she wants and so she's not a uh, she's not what we call a uh, round character although there <laughs> there really aren't round characters in this movie i guess grumpy is probably the only one who really contains multitudes <laughs> and he doesn't contain multitudes so much as two <laughs> That's right. Is it is it worth you know drawing any because because they are all so seemingly flat as as characters? Is it worth fi- trying to find any real world parallels uh, between any of them, like things things that they might be representing beyond, um, you know, allergies or whatever for Sneezy? You know, is there is there something there, or is it just is it all gags? I see them mostly as gags. Do you, do you do you see some bigger point with them? Um, I don't know if I do or not. I haven't given it enough thought. I just, uh, you know, the um, uh, earlier this year I read The Road Back to You, which is about uh, the Enneagram. Have you heard of the Enneagram? Oh, yes. I teach at a Christian college, so uh, I've heard of the Enneagram. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm a three. Okay. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's kind of a self-diagnosing thing from what I can tell. So if you think you're a three, then power through, man. Um, I, I, find it, I find it interesting. I find a lot of that personality test uh, things interesting. Um, I, I have some problems with a lot of them also, but I, I do find them interesting. So I read it. Um, so yeah, there's there's nine on the Enneagram. So it wouldn't you wouldn't be able to line it up perfectly with uh, the seven dwarves, but I was wondering if, if the dwarves could line up with uh, with some of the Enneagram characters or the Enneagram numbers. I mean, I don't know the Enneagram well enough to do it, but uh, Doc would have to be. What's the the kind of cold academic one? Oh, that's yeah. I don't. I, I, I don't think know that's if I know a four. Well I think I'm a four either. and a three. Yeah, I was. I was gonna say, yeah, I was gonna say four is is the cold academic, but but see, well, Doc's you not know, really a cold academic. He's he's an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Doc is short for not doctor. It's short for something else. <laughs> he's the he he just kind of decided he's in charge. I think. Well, they they do acquiesce to him. Even Grumpy does. Yeah, you know, I Grumpy mean, Grumpy. Grumpy makes his snide comments to get him to say things that Doc doesn't actually want to say uh, when he, you know, in a pig's eye and, and things like that. But, um, but yeah, Doc's, Doc's the one who, you know, he tells, he tells Doc to tell Snow White to get out. He doesn't tell Snow White to get out himself. They cut the scene where he and Doc get into a big fight about it, like a fist fight. Oh yeah, I don't know that they ever animated it, but the, mm. they were supposed to get in a fight during that scene, and 
they they cut a lot of stuff. They 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 cut a lot of stuff that didn't immediately serve the plot. Yeah. Which is interesting because it still seems so slow in places to me. Yeah. And it I, seems like they hung a lot on the on certain elements. I mean even like the whole we talked about it a little bit the you know the framing device. You get a lot of the all the backstory you're going to get is in those two pages. They kind of jump straight into it. And then even at the end, you know, there's you know, once the story's over, it's over. Very Which quickly. I mean, not not atypical of fairy tales, right? And the 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 original Grimm's fairy tale, I read it online, but it can't be three pages long. Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of plot to it. Yeah. So what do you think about the uh, the ending? Just with the prince showing up and, and all of that. Well, I, I had remembered that he just kind of stumbles along and decides to kiss this unconscious woman, which is disturbing. But that's not what happened. <laughs> like, they, they fell in love at the very beginning of the movie for the 45 seconds when she's happy before she's ejected from the palace. Uh, and yeah, he's right. been looking for her ever since. I mean, it's been, what, four days? But um, well, no, the seasons change there. That's true. It gets, that's true. Yeah. Most of the movie is like a day and a half, and then you're right. There's a there's a time jump. Yeah. Um. So so you know it works. Uh, the the prince was supposed to have way more to do, but it turns out animating male humans is very difficult. Mm. And so they cut a lot of his scenes, and and a lot of what he was supposed to do ended up being done by Prince Philip in Sleeping Beauty instead. So if you think of yeah. Prince uh, Prince Philip as a kind of Douglas Fairbanks, Errol Flynn, swashbuckler, that stuff was supposed to belong to the prince here, who is not Prince mm. Charming. Um, he's yeah, just called the prince. Yeah, she calls him Charming, but yeah, he's just the prince. But she does say that he was charming. Did, what, what did you and, think? Did you think the ending worked? Well, I was I was thinking of it, and and again, I'm going to bring Tolkien into this, but Tolkien talks about the U catastrophe, which is the the good kind of better than a a it's not just a happy ending it's the 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 move from a complete tragedy into an une, unexpected joy right is the you catastrophe if i'm explaining it right and so in that sense um the prince is definitely i feel like he he fills that role because there, this is beyond all hope she's been not only dead, but, you know, in the, in a coffin for throughout seasons, you know, like this isn't just a, she's still lying on the kitchen floor and he revives her. Like she's, she's been gone, um, for a while, but is able to step in and, and, and revive her. And then I found it very interesting, um, that he comes in and then, uh, and I'm not quite sure what to make of the ending where then he leads her to, uh, towards his castle and it appears to be in the sky almost and it's golden you know i didn't and it's a very different image than the witch's castle at the beginning which is very clearly on the ground in a rock you know so yeah that's interesting it's it's heavenly huh yeah i felt, I felt like there's a real seemed to be a heavenly parallel there well of course this Perhaps. is I, I believe the only disney character we see praying yeah, I noticed that too. That there was the prayer. 
I was trying to remember if there was any other prayers in the in the Disney movies, and none jumped immediately to mind. Although I'm not um, part of why I wanted to go on this uh, conversation with you through all these movies is because there's there's several that I've either not seen or not seen in such a long time that I I don't have any real memory of them. The Even just now when you're talking about the only one I can think of that might have it is uh, is Pinocchio, but I guess we'll find out next month. That's right, because Pinocchio will be our next one, right? I think I think you might be right. Geppetto might pray in Pinocchio. I can't remember if he prays or if he's wishing on a star, you know. Oh, that's true. Those things are very uh, interconnected there. Which actually, it was the other thing. This is a little bit of, nowadays you'd call it an Easter egg maybe, but the, the dwarves, when they first come along the cottage, they say Jiminy Cricket. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, is is a popular fake swear word. Yeah, which I, I don't think I knew that though. Yeah, it's what it's I like. Didn't, it's like I didn't saying Jesus Crow. It's it's instead of saying Jesus Christ. Right. But yeah, I, I, I wasn't aware of that. I, I was I, I was never aware that uh, that the cricket in Pinocchio was actually a pun. Yeah. So you learn something new all the time. Well, is there anything else you wanted to hit on? Uh, I feel like we've exhausted a lot. Yeah, our our episode is now longer than the movie, so it's probably time. <laughs> it's probably time to wrap it up. All right. Well, as you mentioned, uh, next month we'll be back again uh, discussing Pinocchio, which is the second in uh, in this in this series. And so, if you have any thoughts or um, things that you want to bring to our attention about Pinocchio, kind of the goal of these uh, conversations is just, uh, as I said at the beginning, to to heighten everyone's enjoyment of these movies. So please feel free to uh, send that along to us. Any any thoughts or ideas that you might have about Pinocchio uh, to before they were live at gmail.com. And Before They Were Live is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network, and our press liaison is Kristen Philippic.